At an event like World Time Attack, we are more used to seeing really high-end builds that have had potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars poured into them. And while that is great, it's certainly an end of the market that's not that achievable for most of us at the enthusiast level. So we're here with Andrew from Essex Developments to talk about a more budget-focused build. Welcome to High Performance Academy's Tuned In Field Report podcast series. In these special midweek episodes, we look back through our archives to find the best conversations we've had through years worth of attending the best automotive events across the globe. We've pulled the audio from these tech-filled interviews with some of the industry's most well-known figures and presented it in podcast format for you to enjoy as a quick hit of insider knowledge. Now, Andrew... Well, we're talking about a budget build here. You actually spend most of your world time attacks helping out under Suzuki's S15, the Scorch Racing S15, which is anything but a budget build. He's not here this year, so has that given you the opportunity to stretch your legs in your own car for a change? Yeah, it was a bit of a, a thing. I'd run mostly track days at Wakefield Park, and then um, uh, World Time Attack invited me to run as a bit of a late entry, uh, and I thought, well, it's a good opportunity to do it. Um, it's, it's more expensive than a normal track day, but it's, yeah, it's a cool thing to do, a bit different. Uh, talking about the car, it's a, it's a 180 SX quite clearly, but uh, can you give us a bit of a history? How did you come to own the car and, and, and what's sort of been the development of it? Um, yeah, so I bought the car as a, a rolling shell cheap. Um, it had some of the bits on it, some suspension bits, uh, carbon doors, plastic windows and a roll cage. Uh, so then I just put an engine that I'd built for my daily driver uh, into it uh, and a, a NASCAR Jericho gearbox that I'd uh, bought for $500 in a box of pieces and rebuilt um, and then uh, sort of spiralled out of control, ended up converting the engine to dry sump using also old NASCAR parts and, uh, and went a bit more fancy on the aero than I was planning to originally but um, sort of ended up as a pretty good package. All right, let's come back and just unpack some of those elements you just talked about. We'll start with the, the SR20, and, it, and it's an engine that uh, is very popular, but particularly for racing applications, it's not without its own set of issues. So can you talk to us about the spec of the engine and what you've done to it? Uh, so the, the engine's a pretty basic build. Uh, it's got a set of Wiseco forged pistons, a set of second-hand Eagle rods. Uh, the bore was a bit oversized, so it's a bit rattly. Um, and then uh, the first shakedown I did on this, I threw a rocker arm, which is uh, everyone says, yep, told you so, but I, I've never had that happen before. Um, so then I've ended up having to fix that, uh, and I upgraded the cams, new valve springs, and uh, kind of beefed it up a little bit more to be a bit more reliable. Um, but I don't, it's not being pushed super hard. I don't rev it super high, so I, I tried to keep it a little bit reliable. Uh, definitely some of the, the, the two key problems around the, the rocker reliability come down to the RPM ceiling you're using and also uh, staying away from using ignition cuts. Are you doing anything else uh, to, to keep the rockers reliable? Uh, yeah, so the ignition cut uh, was the thing that killed it the first time. Uh, I never liked that and I didn't use it, but I was told that time that it's all good and um, it wasn't. Um, so the other thing is, uh, you know, reasonably high boost with valve, the valve springs need to be really stiff. Um, I also 
changed to a dual guide shim setup um, so that it's just a little bit less likely for the rockets to come loose and basically just very carefully set all the clearances. So I've done, I did the clearances multiple times, made sure everything's in spec. And, um, and, and yeah, I don't rev it super high and I use a fuel cut rev limit and um, just kind of try and be a little bit careful. Now, I'll, I'll just sort of dive into that for those who are maybe watching and, and don't really understand why an ignition cut would be a no-no. And, and what tends to happen there is that when we use an ignition cut, we've got a, a cylinder full of unburned fuel and air makes its way into the exhaust where it can explode, which is why we get the pops and bangs when we're using an ignition cut. The problem with that on the SR20 is that creates a pressure spike in the exhaust manifold. And that can be enough to pop the exhaust valve back off its seat. Then the rocker loses control or contact and, and the, the rest is often expensive history. So just, just wanted to get that, that in there. Okay, so in terms of um, power and boost pressure, what are, you, what are you sort of at there? Uh, so it runs about 1.7, 1.8 bar, 25 PSI-ish. Um, and what was the other bit? <laughs> how, how much power are you getting at that sort of boost level? The important thing. Um, 360 rear-wheel kilowatts, so it's about 480 horsepower. Uh, and it's it's the power band is quite wide, so it's probably from 5,000 to 7.5. It, it makes that much power. It's kind of at the limit of the turbo the whole time. And what is that turbocharger? It's a Kinagawa TDO6 SL220G with a billet wheel and uh, the sort of EFR style uh, blower valve in the compressor cover. Okay, so I mean, what I'm hearing here is that you've pieced together a combination without breaking the bank in any one area, but you've still got something that's producing good power, albeit not stratospheric. You've got a wide power band, which obviously is going to help with the drivability of the car. Is that sort of a reasonable way of summing it up? Yeah, yeah. So the idea was um, that it's the turbo. I think it was eight hundred dollars or something delivered, so it was pretty cheap upgrade from you know basic old stuff that i'd been running and it ends up making enough power that it's a fast car especially when it's light uh, but it's you know it's not crazy you're not we're not running uh, like into the limits of con rods or you know the bearing caps and that sort of thing and hence, you can stay away from needing some of those more expensive upgrades like billet caps or better quality con rods. Yeah, yeah. So just kind of stay within that limit. And also the drivetrain. So standard axles, standard R200 diff setup and everything. It's kind of, it's reliable at that sort of power level, especially on a light car. Uh, yeah. now, now, you mentioned that you've dry sumped it. And when people watching this hear, hear the term dry sump, they're probably seeing dollar signs and you know it, it wouldn't be uncommon to spend five or $6,000, maybe even more, uh, doing a dry sump setup. So you call this a budget bill, but it's dry sumped. What, do you, what parts do you use? You mentioned sort of NASCAR secondhand parts, but what parts do you use? And can you give us a rundown on sort of approximately what, what money went into that dry sump setup? Yeah, so uh, the original sort of setup was basically, uh, it's a Weaver Brothers pump uh, three stage which is the same as a stock car product pump and they're reasonably cheap even new like 1300 us dollars um i bought it i, I think i bought the the pump the tank and a lot of lines and fittings and everything for a few hundred dollars delivered from the states um and then i bought an oil pan which was an older model like x display high octane pan for a few hundred dollars and Otherwise, I was going to just modify the factory pan, um, but this popped up was nice and easy. Um, 
and I did end up spending probably a thousand dollars or so on on plumbing, um, not all for the dry sump, but also the fuel system. And then um, I, I had a slight leak on the original pump, and I pulled it apart, found that it's sealed with silicon rather than having O-rings and everything. And I thought this is going to give me trouble, and I ended up buying a cheap but new pump, and had all new problems with that, but eventually got it all sorted. All right, so it sounds like a, a bit of Aussie ingenuity and maybe scouring eBay and uh, being a little bit careful on what you're buying has given you a, a, what could have been a really expensive setup for cents on the dollar. Yeah, it's, there's, I've had auto searches on eBay for, for things that I want and, uh, and some things I found pretty quickly. Some things took me six months or a year. Uh, one of those was the, the sequential shift mechanism for the gearbox. Um, extremely rare. I found out about it. They were pretty expensive, new, and apparently still available at the time. Um, put an auto search on eBay. I think it took about a year, and then one popped up for $150, fairly local, and I, I clicked it as fast as I could click it. Um, and even the gearbox, it was... I, I talked to a few people, and they said, oh, maybe have a look for a Jericho box or something uh, in the USA. And I, I searched on eBay for NASCAR gearbox or something, and... Uh, one popped up for $500 in a box of pieces, uh, but it was in Australia. I'd accidentally searched on Australian eBay and not uh, US eBay, so I uh, clicked very fast on that one as well. And then I eventually got uh, a different gear set for it, uh, sort of pieced together on eBay, different gears and, and spare parts for it and rebuilt it. I mean, most people, just like the dry sump, when you're talking about upgraded gearboxes and particularly dog engagement uh, gearboxes for motorsport use, you're sort of starting to talk usually numbers, you know, north of about $10,000, maybe well over that if you're starting to go sequential. So you're into this gearbox, albeit not in factory form a sequential, but you've converted it with that shifter mechanism. So you've now got a, a sequential dog engagement gearbox for under $1,000. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I mean, it only has four gears and it's, it won't shift as fast as a, as a really proper sequential gearbox, but it's pretty fast, pretty strong. It's very light uh, and compact, so it, it just kind of works well in the, in the package. Do you want to take your car knowledge game to the next level? Join us in the next free lesson at hpacademy.com slash free and start developing your own skills today. All right, let, let's talk about the electronics in the car because managing the uh, the engine is obviously uh, critical to getting the power out of it as well as ensuring some reliability. So what have you got in there in terms of engine management and driver displays, etc.? So I cheated a little bit on the budget with the ECU. Uh, I won it in a competition. Uh, not one of your competitions, uh, but a, a Haltech local competition. And um, it, I mean, that sort of saved money uh it sort of didn't because it meant that i had to upgrade a bunch of other stuff uh so it it's you know it cost a fair bit to do all the wiring and and uh i needed to change the dash data logger setup to work with that because my old setup was not compatible um but the so it's a haltech elite 2500 ecu which is probably overkill for what i'm doing but it yeah it works uh it does the job it's it's good and um, the data logger, I've had, I think, five different random old setups in there over the, over the years, most of which never even saw the track. Uh, and it currently has an older model Motec ADL3, uh, which was lent to me. 
The, the ADL3, older, but still a, a, a very capable logger, and obviously you can still use the same data analysis software that Motec currently use on their newer generation of dashes, correct? Yeah, it's, um, it's actually quite nice. It does everything you could want, and it's customizable CAN uh, messaging so that you can get data from, you can get all of the ECU channels um, into it, whereas the previous dash I ran was an old uh, AMMXL Pro, and um, which was actually really nice. I really liked it, but the CAN bus in that is not customizable. So I and it, and it only supported an old uh, old Haltech protocol. So a lot of the channels that are available in the newer Haltech firmware are not available into the, in that dash. Um, it really limits what you can actually input into the dash and display. Yeah, and I, I like, you know, it costs a lot to go to the track, and whereas it doesn't cost anything to look at data and play with nerd stuff at home. So I like to do that in between events, and and you know, to get, having more data, more sensors, that sort of thing is is kind of cheap entertainment compared to the actual racing. Uh, talking about that that nerd element, and uh, and I share that passion as well. Looking at data for me, more more data is always better. You can never have enough. So I'm interested, like, what what are you? What are your key metrics that you're looking at in terms of uh, sort of developing the car, developing your driving, and knowing where you can actually go faster? So at the moment, um, I mean, it's it's good having all the, as much engine data as you can get because you can really keep an eye on things, make sure everything's behaving well, and um, for driving, I like having a steering sensor. So basically, I have brake pressure, steering. Uh, I have damper pots, which were another second-hand uh, random buy. Um, and, and, of course, the, the accelerometers in the dash. So you can get a lot of information from that and, and being able to compare different laps. Um, you know, you can really see where you should be able to improve or you can at least see where the limits should be so uh, it does take a while to find those limits especially if the car's pretty fast all right look Andrew I think it sounds like we've got some cars starting up in the background that's going to make it pretty hard for us to talk very soon so I uh, appreciate your time there it, it is an impressive build given that it hasn't been done with a massive budget uh, as we finish off could you give us sort of a, a rough idea of how much money in total you think you've put, put into this car so far so the car in general um, is basically built for less than $20,000, but uh, you know there's a few extra expenses for World Time Attack, some of the safety gear and things, which may or may not be included in that, depending on how you're calculated. So. Anyway, you look at that, uh, the, the package you put together for $20,000 is uh, an incredible value for money. So hopefully those watching this video will, will maybe understand that with a bit of creative shopping on eBay, it uh, doesn't always need to, to break the bank in order to build a, a fast, fun and competitive car. Thanks for your time and good luck for the rest of the day. No worries, thanks a lot. If you enjoy this podcast, please feel free to leave us a review on whatever platform you've chosen to listen to it on. It goes a long way to helping us get the word out there. All these conversations and much more are also available in full on our High Performance Academy YouTube channel, so make sure you subscribe.